Please stand for the reading of God's word. From Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Hey all, so Pastor Justin here. It's good to be with you for week eight of Making Sense of the Nonsense. And uh, this week we are talking about one of the, the hottest topics in our world today and, and genuinely one of the most difficult ones uh, to talk about well. And so that answer, that, that topic is transgenderism or gender kind of more broadly. Um, and before we get into the message, I want to recommend a couple of books to you um, that I found very helpful to me over the last couple of years to think well about this issue. And I, I think if it's something that you're interested in, it uh, can be helpful to you as well. The first is a book called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. Uh, Nancy Piercy is a really, really great Christian thinker, theologian, philosopher, um, and she's written a number of books. But Love Thy Body is uh, about gender and the body. It's really, really good. Um, another is um, uh, called A People to be Loved, and it's by Preston Sprinkle, uh, which is just a fun name to say anyway. Uh, but Preston Sprinkle is someone who has engaged the LGBTQ community at a really, really high level and uh, has written this book, A People to be Loved. Highly recommend it. Very robustly biblical. The last is actually written by someone who's not a Christian. It's called Irreversible Damage, and it's by a woman named Abigail Schreier. And Abigail Schreier is, uh, like I said, an atheist, uh, but someone who works in kind of clinical psychology and has seen some of the effects of the transgender ideology and its effects specifically on young women. And so highly recommend all three of those books. Um, so when, when we get into a topic like this one and sexuality was similar, race is similar, um, it's challenging as a preacher for a number of different reasons. One is that um, it is a, a huge topic. We can literally go in a million different directions with the idea of gender. We could preach a 12-week series only on this issue and the, the way that uh, the philosophical kind of ideas that exist today, how they were built, where they came from, which I find extremely interesting. In fact, if you want to do a deep dive on the history of these ideas, uh, Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self is just fantastic. It's a, it's a read for sure, but it is so good. And, uh, and it, it really charts from uh, Nietzsche all the way to these modern ideas uh, around uh, sexuality and gender. So really, really good. So it's a huge topic. Um, but there are also challenges biblically in the sense that um, there is, you know, transgenderism didn't have the same kind of uh, foothold in culture during biblical days. And so there aren't texts that uh, speak specifically to transgender ideology the way it might uh, other issues in our world. Now, uh, the Bible talks a lot about gender itself. And that's what we're going to look at. But it doesn't speak specifically to this idea of transgenderism. That creates challenges. Um, there's also cultural challenges, right? Like, uh, they, you know, when something is as hot a topic as this, if a lot of times what happens is if you say A and somebody else says A, then that must mean you agree with B through Z that this person thinks, even though all you're saying is the same A, if that makes sense. 
So there are a lot of people that are anti-trans that I and, and we would, would not align with in any way. They are not Christian. They are not, uh, if, even if they claim Christianity, they are not uh, Christianly in the way they engage this issue. And so there are, there's all kinds of cultural baggage that, that goes along with this. The last one, and I would say the most difficult part of preaching a message like this, is the personal nature of a topic like this, right? So probably uh, each of you watching this uh, know somebody or are connected in some way to somebody who is trans or has excuse me, experienced gender dysphoria in one way or another. And so there's a personal nature to this. Possibly even you. Uh, have uh, are experiencing gender dysphoria. Possibly even you are living out a trans identity. And, and so this is extremely personal because it touches um, what is in many ways a core piece of a person's identity, their gender. And so um, I recognize the sensitive nature of that and the personal nature of that and, and would just ask for a ton of grace because this is not the kind of medium that affords us the, the opportunity to have a personal conversation that is nuanced to your specific experience. And so uh, by, by the necessity of the context, I have to talk somewhat in generalization, and I'm sure there are many ways um, that the generalization doesn't fit your unique experience. And so I would invite you, if, if you are in our community, invite you to come talk to me, talk to Pastor Harvey about these issues if you have questions, because um, I'm sure there are a lot of questions to be had. So here's what I want to do. I want to do three things today. First thing is I want to lay down some theological foundations, the way in which we as Christians make sense of an idea like gender and the way we make sense of the world at large. And so these are the theological foundations, the frame. And some of this is going to be repetitive. You heard this before because when we talked about worldview, when we talked about human rights, a lot of this stuff is all founded in the same ideas, okay? And it's the lens through which we see the world. So we're going to lay down some theological foundations Second thing is we are going to talk um, at length about what is transgenderism and what is the what is the ideology of transgenderism and and kind of try to define some terms a little bit so we know what we're talking about um, and then lastly do some practical application what does this mean for the Christian how do we engage uh, this issue as Christians in a place like Los Angeles okay so let's get started uh, first theological foundations if you will turn to Genesis chapter one. We're into Genesis 1-1 to begin. If you don't know where that is, it's page 1, okay, in your Bibles, Genesis 1-1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this idea is the most foundational idea that Christians have, that in the beginning, God, right? That's where our whole theology, that's where our whole worldview begins, that in the beginning, God, not in the beginning, me, right? And this is probably the most fun, fundamental way. If we had to reduce all of the differences between modern ideology and philosophy, postmodern philosophy, and, and biblical worldview, if you had to narrow them down to the very, very core of them, I would say it, it, this is it, that Christians begin with the presumption that God exists first and foremost, and that God created all things. Okay? And so because God is the creator of all things, God is also the definer of all things. Nothing exists that he didn't create, make, define, and give purpose to. Okay? So that's where we begin. 
God is God and we are not. God is the ultimate authority. God is the creator. We are the created. So we are necessarily derivative. We are dependent upon God, not only to give us breath, but to maintain that breath as well. Okay, and so that's, that's where we begin. So if there's ever a moment where we think one thing and God thinks another, we lose. It's really as simple as that. The one who defines the world is the one who created the world. Okay, now skip ahead a couple verses to verse 26. So after God created all things, it says, then God said, let us make man, and you probably have a little footnote. Uh, if you go down to the bottom, it says also mankind, right? So God created mankind, humanity. Okay. God created, said, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. Okay. We talked about this a number of times in this series alone, that what we believe about human beings is that every human being is made in the image of God. That is, that is the most fundamental thing. That is the truest thing about you is that you were made in the image of God, which means you, me, every other human you've ever seen is an image bearer of God, equally deserving of dignity and honor in from each other and in the eyes of God. Okay. And so there is an essential equality to every human being. This is one of the most revolutionary ideas that Christianity has. In fact, this idea, maybe more than any other, absolutely created the Western world and all of our ideas about human rights and human dignity, right? None of that existed before this. Okay. So that's the foundation for us. So when we talk about an issue like transgenderism, we start with God. And then the second idea is all people are the same in terms of dignity and honor and value. Okay. So we are all made in the image of God. Third idea, the very, uh, the end of that sentence, it says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Okay, so God made us with purpose, right? God made all things with a purpose. We exist for a reason. We were given dominion, which means we have responsibility for, but we've been given the job of cultivation and multiplication, as we'll see here in a moment, that, that to have dominion over a thing is to cultivate it, to, to create something more, to make it its best, right? To love, protect, to care for, to cultivate. That's what divin dominion means, to care for and cultivate God's world, right? And our identity in many ways is found in that purpose. God said, I made you for a reason. Here's that reason. Therefore, we go, okay, well, that's what I'm here for. That is the purpose. And that is to cultivate God's creation as his image bearers, reflecting his glory and his priorities, right? Okay, verse 27. Then it says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God made us from the very beginning, male and female. There is an essential binary to gender in the very beginning of our Bible, in the very beginning of creation, that God said that it is maleness and femaleness together, that binary that most fully expresses the image of God. That is that, that, that together images God most 
fully. Okay, so that that is kind of the foundational these these foundational ideas. We start with God. God made us. God made us in His image. God gave us a purpose, and God made us binary. God made us male and female. Okay, that's where we begin. Doesn't always go that way. Genesis three. Okay, I know we're doing some basics here, but these are our foundations. This is how we start to think about this issue. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when woman's, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, okay? This is what theologians call the fall, right? This is how we think about why things are broken, why there is pain, why there is hurt, why there is death. It is because sin entered the world through this moment. Now, notice that the temptation of Eve was a temptation to autonomy, right? That's what the serpent sold Eve on. She said, the serpent said to Eve, listen, God is trying to keep you down. He is trying to maintain his godness and your humanness and the gap between them. If you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. And Eve and Adam, who was with her, said, great, I want to be like God. So the first temptation was the temptation to autonomy. The, uh, the, the temptation to self-actualization, to self-realization, to, to a self-guiding. And, and this is the temptation that has guided our world forever, right? This is what has manifested itself most fully in postmodern culture today, right? So we want more autonomy. We want more freedom. We want more responsibility and authority over our own lives to say who we are, okay? Now... What almost nobody disagrees with is the idea that, that there is disorder in our world, that there is such a thing as evil. Very few people would say that there is no such thing as evil. We would say some things are bad, some things are good, and it's kind of on us to decide which things are bad and which things are good. Okay? So here is the essential question, and it's the question at the root of the fall. Who gets to decide what's good? Who gets to decide what's evil? We started with Genesis chapter 1 that said God created all things, God defined all things, including good and evil. The temptation of the serpent to Eve and Adam was you could be like God, you could be autonomous, you can make these decisions for yourself, you can decide what is good and evil for you. All you have to do is rebel against God and try to take from him his authority and establish your own autonomy. Okay, so that's the, that's the core sin at the heart of all sin, right? Luther called the, the core sin pride. Well, at the end of the day, pride is just wanting to be something more than you are, 
right? So that's this, right? It's just to say, I want to be God. So every time we sin, and when we do so, especially consciously, when we go, no, I'm going to choose this, even though I know God has said this is sin, that's just us asserting our autonomy. That's just saying, yeah, I know God has said that sin, but I say otherwise, I'm going to go do it anyway. That's the first rebellion. You are even at It's not different, okay? So, the, the, the answer to this problem, the solution to this problem, is redemption. This is the gospel message. So the gospel message is one of restoration. Okay, So something was essentially broken, and God restores it. it God puts all broken things back together. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's restorative. Okay? So this is our, our foundation. The gospel, and the, the kind of big picture uh, telling of the gospel is... Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, right? That's how we would tell the story of the gospel. That God created all things good. Sin and our rebellion to be God broke everything. Christ's death on the cross redeems us back to God. And then the work of the Spirit culminating at the end is to restore things back to what they were before the rebellion. Okay? So this is how we see issues like gender. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We would say, God created things to be a certain way. Sin, our desire for autonomy and authority over our own lives, has broken God's way, God's path, in such a way that we now get to define our own rules. Christ's grace for us on the cross is his beckoning to us to say, hey, come back by grace. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to undo anything. You don't have to reverse everything, every bad decision you've made. By grace, be redeemed back into relationship and then allow the Holy Spirit to restore you back to what you were created to be. Okay? So these are the theological foundations from which we come to this issue. Now, I want to transition here and talk a little bit about gender and transgenderism in particular. First thing I want to do is define our terms. And so um, one of the things I believe when you are making arguments is you have to define terms in a way that your opponent would affirm. Okay, otherwise you're creating a straw man argument. Okay, so in order to do that, I went to the Stonewall Organization, which is one of the prominent, most prominent LGBTQ rights organizations in the world, and, and to find uh, their own definitions of, of these things. So they would define gender dysphoria as uh, this way, they'd say, you, this, this term is used to describe when a person experiences discomfort or distress because there is a mismatch between their sex assigned at birth and their gender, gender identity, right? And so the way that they self-identify is different than the way their body would present, okay? So that's what gender dysphoria is. Uh, transgenderism. This is an umbrella term used to describe people whose gender is not the same as or does not sit comfortably with the sex they were assigned at birth. So these two ideas are very similar. The difference is that gender dysphoria is actually a clinical term used by doctors and scientists to describe a, a disconnect at a, at a mental level between body and mind or, or uh, identity, okay? So the, the, the most important thing, before we go any further, right? The most important thing, and I'm gonna say this a bunch of times, the most important thing that I want you to hear today is that transgender people and people who advocate for transgender ideology are image bearers of God, made by him, loved by him, Christ died for them, they are equally worthy of dignity, honor, and love. That never changes, okay? So if you hear anything from me today, hear that, 
Okay, so we want to tell the truth about what we, how we see these issues, and disconnect that from the way we would ever, ever, ever treat uh, a, a, a transgender person. Okay, so a, a couple other details here. Federal and state population studies from 2016, so a couple years ago, uh, estimate that uh, between 0.6 and 0.7% of the U.S. population identify as transgender. This is according to the Williams Institute at the UCLA School of Law. Now, it may surprise you that that's such a small number, less than 1% uh, of the population would identify with gender dysphoria, um, especially in light of the massive cultural impact that these ideas have had. In fact, um, one of the ways our family is connected to this is that when my oldest daughter, who's now in eighth grade, was in second grade, we were living in Seattle in public school, and uh, a little girl became a little boy in second grade. And, you know, that's part of living in, in cities like Seattle and San Francisco and L.A., even uh, as we have. And parents get to make the decisions they want to make. I, I have no control over that. The, the challenge for us, and the reason why we actually left that school, was because the teacher and the principal uh, told the kids about it and celebrated it with the kids and not, never told uh, the parents, uh, and, and in fact, wouldn't answer questions about how they handled the situation. And so um, this is such a massive shift in such a short amount of time in a, uh, it, it, on an issue that affects such a tiny amount of people uh, that is now this, these ideas are being taught to second graders in, in public schools uh, without parental, parental interaction at all. But here's why. Because these ideas, uh, transgenderism in particular, is just a natural continuation of a worldview that begins with human autonomy as the highest good. Now, here's, here's what's, uh, where Christianity and, and postmodernism are most at odds. Our story says God created all things, is the definer and, and, and purpose maker of all things. And what rebellion looks like is, uh, is seeking autonomy uh, from God. What our world says is autonomy and self-expression are the highest good. And in fact, anything that would restrict that uh, is evil. Okay, so you see that they're exactly the opposite, right? So that, that is going to be a very fundamentally different way in which we see the world and, and would live within it. So it should be no surprise that these ideologies and groups of people are at odds with one another when you start with such a basic difference of understanding, right? So in a postmodern worldview, uh, human autonomy and therefore self-expression is the highest good, right? We would say, I can do what I want, love who I want, be what I want, and the only evil is to impede my self-expression, okay? That's, that's, a, that's the summation of postmodern ideology. Now, there are several challenges kind of associated with this. The first is psychological. Right? Until 2013, gender dysphoria um, was called gender identity disorder and treated as such, treated as a disorder. And there is still a lot of concern around these issues in the medical field. In fact, the American College of Pediatricians put out a statement uh, just a few years ago saying, uh, young children are being sterilized and surgically maimed under the guise of treating a condition that would otherwise resolve in 80% of cases. And so the argument there is that when young children uh, uh, you know, say that they are an opposite gender, 80% of the time, it's a phase they grow out of. 
And so when parents take surgical or physical steps, hormonal steps, when these children are young, they're literally intervening in a situation that would resolve itself normally in 80% of cases. Uh, Dr. Paul McHugh, who is a former psychiatrist in chief at Johns Hopkins uh, uh, Hospital, stopped performing sex change surgery saying, quote, I conclude that to provide a surgical alteration to the body of these unfortunate people was to collaborate with a mental disorder rather than treat it. Okay, and so one of the analogies that is often made is with anorexia. Okay, so um, in a situation where someone is anorexic, they look at themselves in a mirror and they see themselves as fat, even though they are life-threateningly skinny. Right? And so a lot of women in particular die of anorexia because they are uh, they die of malnutrition because they're not feeding their bodies because mentally they think they are a fat person, but in reality, they're physically, they are not. They are deathly skinny. So we would say that is a disorder that needs to be treated, but when a person looks at themselves in the mirror and sees a woman, even though they are objectively male, we, we affirm that and tell them that we should build a world that supports them, okay? So the, the challenge with this is that if people who are experiencing gender dysphoria are experiencing a genuinely psychological disorder, then affirming that is actually hurting them, not helping them. The same way affirming, so if a, an anorexic person said, I am fat, even though they're objectively skinny, you would never say, yeah, you are fat, just to support them. You would never do that. And yet that's exactly what we do with people who are gender dysphoric. So that, that's a real challenge psychologically and scientifically. Um, philosophically, there are challenges as well. And this, is, this, has become, this question has become kind of a, a, a touch point. And so I want to be really careful how we talk about this because there are many people who are making these arguments out in the world, especially in social media that we would in no way advocate for or, or see eye to eye with. But the, the reality is that this ideology around transgenderism cannot make, this, make sense of the question, what is a woman? Okay, we can't really answer that question. So if you have seen, uh, there are uh, guys like Matt Walsh who go around and, and have conversations with, confrontations with, ultimately, um, uh, people who are gender studies major or gender studies professors or advocates for trans rights, and will have these conversations, ask them to define woman, uh, what a woman is, and, and they can't. And so they obscure and, and, and dodge and ultimately say even that question is transphobic, which is uh, a great way to not have to engage this idea, okay? The reality is feminism has rightly fought against many unhelpful gender stereotypes, right? We don't talk about sissy boys and tomboys and, you know, we, we, don't, we don't have those same gender stereotypes anymore that girls are the ones that play with dolls and wear dresses and boys are the ones that get dirty and play with trucks and all of that, even though that is still largely true as a father of five. We don't make those stereotypes. We have culturally fought against them. But the problem is, as the ideology of gender fluidity and, and, and transgenderism prevails, it undercuts its own ability to define what a woman is, right? Because it can't be behavioral, right? We, we can't say uh, girls act like this and boys act like this. We have undone those stereotypes. It can't be biological now because your sexual organs don't define you, according to this ideology. And it can't be social because men and women can take on any social roles and play any roles in relationship. So then 
what is a woman? How would you define what a woman is? And, and one of the answers that uh, the trans rights advocates would give is that a woman is any person who desires to be a woman, who feels like a woman. Well, there are two major problems with this. One is that desire makes for bad ontology. Okay, and so uh, for, for those of you who don't know what ontology is, uh, ontology is uh, the it, it kind of the, the way we understand being. Okay, ontology is the study of being. How do we know what we are or what exists? Okay, desire makes for bad ontology. I can't be essentially, ontologically, be whatever it is I desire. And we decided this as a culture some years ago, right? There was a woman named Rachel Dolezal, who was a white woman who, quote, identified as black. And as a culture, we went, nope, can't do that, right? Like a white person can't just decide that they are a black person. And so that logic is the same. She was this, but identified as that. And we said, no. Okay. There are more extreme and fringe examples of this, and I don't recommend Googling these things, but there are a whole group of people who identify as animals, right? They live their lives to the best of their ability as dogs or cats or whatever it is. The technical term is trans species. And yes, it's fringe, but it exists on the internet at least. There are people who are trans age, People who identify as babies, grown men who identify as little children and live at home with their parents who enable it, and they just live their lives as if they are toddlers. This is a thing, okay? But the logic, even though these are fringe things and we might snicker at some of them, the logic basically holds. I desire to be something else. I feel like something else. What is the essential difference between say, a man saying, I feel like a woman, and another man saying, I feel like a cat, or a white man saying, I feel like a black man, or whatever it is, I feel like a toddler when you're 43. There's no ontological difference there. And so there's a, there's a real challenge philosophically for that to make sense without opening the floodgates to, yeah, like anything you want to be, you will be, and we will affirm it, and we will orient our society around you being able to express your identity in those ways. But there's a second problem, right? Let's assume that works. Let's assume that, that we are on board with the logic. Well, the question again is, what is it that these people actually desire? Right? So if you are a man who desires to be a woman or feels like a woman, what is it that you feel? Can't be biological, again, can't be behavioral or social. We can't say, well, I feel like a woman because I want to do these things because I feel feminine. Well, what does that mean? Well, I want to have this body. Well, it's not about body. Well, I want to play this role. Well, it's not about this role. Well, I want to wear these clothes. Well, it's not about, it can't be about these clothes. So again, this is kind of a snake eating its own tail kind of a situation where once you have deconstructed all the categories, how can you reconstruct them to suit your purpose. One of the most amazing things in this whole experience has been uh, Caitlyn Jenner. When Caitlyn Jenner, when Bruce Jenner became Caitlyn Jenner, um, she, she did an interview in which she said, I've always just loved wearing pantyhose or, or the idea of wearing pantyhose and high heels. 
And I'm going like, the, she, Bruce Jenner desired to be a woman from the 1980s, right? Like the stereotypes are back. His desire was to act like a woman in the 80s. And that's crazy, not because that was his desire, but because it's just literally a regression of stereotype. And that's, that's the kind of like bonkers nonsense that happens when you cannot make sense of all of this. I mean, there's, a, there's an essential question when it comes to same-sex attraction. What does that even mean? What does it mean to be attracted to your same sex if you can't identify even what it means to be attracted to a man because you can't say what a man is? What are you attracted to? Okay. So let me pause here because we're, we're getting into philosophical arguments and logical arguments and, and I never for a minute want us to lose the sense of the fact that these are real people. People who God loves, whom God created, whom God made uniquely, who are made in his image, who are worthy of dignity and honor and our love and support. Okay. So the last thing I want to say about this, though, is that at the end of the day, women lose this game. At, at the end of the day, biological women are the ones who will lose this game. And, and it's just... The reality, when, when men are, when biological men are stepping into these female spaces and, and women are having to defer and say, yes, absolutely, we affirm the fact that you are now a woman. And, and then a woman like Leah Thomas goes out and wins all these races because she is a biological man with all the advantages of being a biological man, beating these biological women in, in these college swimming races, setting records at times because she has these advantages and all these girls who have worked their whole lives for this lose. The women always lose, okay? So part of what we have to do is be able to frame this, this binary, frame this, this as Christians, frame it in the sense of like, this is how God created the world to be. And God in his infinite goodness had purpose behind it, had love and, and, and design behind it that is ultimately for our good. So lastly, what do we do? What do we do? How do we respond? One, no one, no one should love trans people more than Christians. No one. Paul says that we should outdo one another in love. We as the Christian community should outdo everyone else in loving these people, being compassionate for these people because what, what we essentially would believe is that they are suffering from a, a, a genuine crisis of identity. They are subject to the pressures of the world around them. They are subject to the sin in them and around them and, 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 and are buckling to it in ways that they need love and support and compassion and grace. We, as the Christian church, have at, at, at large, and this is not about any one individual, but at large, have done a very poor job of this. We have not led the charge in loving trans people and people who advocate for trans ideology well. Knowing full well that even if we do love them without affirmation, we are, we are unlikely, it's unlikely that that will be received as love. But, but we have to do it anyway. Okay, so that's one. Two, we do need to be prepared to give an answer for our convictions. We need to have the information. 
We have to have a biblical theology uh, of, of life, a biblical worldview that is coherent, that we can communicate, that we can argue for and advocate for. I encourage you, read these books, because these are the things that will equip you to be able to think well and not simplistically. I think one of the big dangers in this is that Christians think too simplistically and they go, well, it's just God, you know, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And we just make dumb statements like that that are overly simplistic, do not have compassion, and we are not able, because we haven't done the work ourselves, to read and think well about these things. So we are not able to engage them well. And so we, we get challenged and we're not able to meet the challenge or we are, our answers are overly simplistic and therefore not helpful at all. So we need to be prepared to give an answer for our convictions. And it's not just about the information. We also have to have the courage. The vast majority of the time I have seen people turn, Christians in particular, turn on this issue and become uh, affirming of these ideas. It's, it's almost 100% of the time personal. It's a personal relationship that you have where you go, I, I thought I, I believed this stuff, then I met this person, and you don't want, you don't have the courage, you don't have the desire to have a hard conversation, to be honest with them, how you feel about them, to give them the kind of love that they actually need. Or the other way we experience lack of courage in this is that our job gets on the line and we struggle to have the courage to stand up and answer the bell. When, when we're feeling the pressure, the economic pressure, the social pressure, uh, uh, to be able to, to, to be different on this issue. So we need to be prepared. The biggest thing we need to be prepared for is to lose. We will lose this argument, we already have lost this argument, culturally speaking. There is no winning the culture war. Those people who are out there trying to win back America for Jesus by pulling the levers of power are playing a fool's game. Okay? This is not a game that we are going to win uh, at a cultural level. The influence we have had is waning and will continue to wane. And that's okay. Because if you think historically and you think globally, what Christians in America have enjoyed for the last 200 years is an absolutely unique amount of privilege and opportunity and influence that has never existed at any other time in human history and will probably never exist again. We are a people who follow a God who died in order to save, who lost in order to win. So we had better be prepared to walk the way of the cross and not the way of triumphalism, to walk the way of sacrifice and suffering and crucifixion in order to find life on the other end. That we should put our trust in Jesus, not in politicians, not in influencers, in Jesus, and walk the path he walked into pain, into suffering, and then into life on the other side. And last but not least, we have to prepare as a community to support one another, because there will be fallout. There will be those who lose their jobs. There will be those who suffer. And we have to be ready to stand behind them so that they can have the courage to stand up for what we believe, knowing that they have a community of people around them that will love and support them. Let me leave you with this. I've already said this once, but I want to reiterate it again. The way of Jesus is the way of suffering. It's the way of the cross. We, as Christians, must walk into the pain, 
walk into the struggle, walk into the messiness of life with people around us who experience gender dysphoria, who uh, are trans, who are advocates for trans ideology, that we would walk into the truth knowing full well that we're gonna get killed for it. Maybe, maybe not literally, likely not literally, but we are gonna experience real pain and real suffering. And that's the way of Jesus. So we have to hold tight to the truth about what we know and at the very same time, walk in grace, knowing full well and, 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 and acknowledging fully that the people that we are talking to and interacting with need grace just as much as we do. That we, they do not need more than we do. We do not need less. We need the same amount of grace, which is all of it. And if we can walk into these situations firm in our convictions and firm in our belief that we are just as much in need of grace and we can love those people well, knowing that that love may not be reciprocated, we may still experience the consequences. And that is the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we are uh, thankful that you have given us a path, a path that uh, is, is narrow, uh, that is difficult, um, leads to sacrifice, suffering, and death, but ultimately on the other side is life. So Lord, hold our hands, walk with us through the pain and suffering, walk with us through the hard times so that we can come out on the other side, um, rejoicing in life because of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.